Well, hello, and welcome to another episode of Capital Record. Uh, this is one that I have been very, very excited about for, for some time. Um, today, I'm going to be bringing on to Capital Record Rusty Reno, the editor at First Things. Um, it, you may recall uh, in December, there was an article that Rusty had written in First Things um, about a more elevated role for the state in market administration, uh, the idea that perhaps a more moral landscape would be uh, possible if we advocated for a greater role of the state in creating such. And there was a lot more specifics and whatnot that, that went into it. There were uh, a few things in the piece I was very sympathetic to, but an underlying approach to the issue that I'm at odds with. And so I wrote a rebuttal piece in National Review and uh, it invited ongoing conversation around this divide. Um, the divide includes a number of different things, which makes it complicated because we're not just talking about a sort of binary around one issue. We're talking about uh, not only different shades of gray, but also multiple different issues that kind of uh, connect together. And I think you're going to see some of that in my conversation with Rusty today. Um, as to why there are a number of different layers to this divide. Um, I'll leave the introduction there because I really just want to kind of get going in my talk with Rusty. And it's not a talk that's going to conclude anything or solve anything today, but we'll continue the conversation. There are various people right now um, at different positions, different um, degrees of, of fervency right now that um, have positions I have sympathy to, and there are people who have positions I have no sympathy to, and there's a lot in between. Um, and all I want to do with this podcast and with my life is advocate for the right principles and the right consistent and faithful and wisdom-based application of those principles. And hopefully Rusty and I will have a conversation now that drives some of that conversation. So without uh, further ado, let's get started. So with that said, allow me to welcome now to Capital Record for the very first time. Um, this has been something we've been kind of announcing and talking about for a few weeks now, but I'm really excited to have Rusty Reno from First Things here on National Review's Capital Record. Rusty, welcome to Capital Record. Hey, great to be with you. Well, I, I think that um, some listeners kind of know what the, the setup to our, our occasion is. Um, and it really does. Uh, there was an article you had written, and I believe it was the December issue of First Things, and I responded to it in National Review. Um, but even beyond just a, the particular couple articles, there's now some different discussion and, and back and forth and, and whatnot just in, in the general sort of um, conversation at large uh, about the role of markets, about the role of the state, uh, about our those of us who are frustrated at um, some of the aspects of things happening within the commercial society. And so there's kind of a broader debate going on. And then there's some of the specific issues you brought up in your article. And I thought the best way to kind of start it off is just for me to sort of throw an easy lob over the net and, and let you kind of run with it a little. Um, do you believe, Rusty, that markets are a good thing and that the work you're doing right now is meant to protect markets? Or do you believe we need to rethink the idea of a free market economy to begin with? Oh, I'm a very pro-free market economy. Um, the track record is <laughs> overwhelming. The alternative is absurd, stultifying. Um, not just economically disastrous, but disastrous for human freedom. So I think what, uh, what I am concerned about is to get the right uh, mentality, right frame of reference to the moment that we're living in. So let me kind of just spin out for you my, my kind of stump speech, if you will. Sure. Um, because I think a lot of it has to do with where first thing stands, I think, in, in the 2020s. So, you know, I think we look at the post-war era and we came out of the war and the New Deal um, with a highly consolidated government-controlled economy, in some ways out of necessity in terms of the war effort. 
that was deconsolidated somewhat in the 1950s, but we really we really sustained a a a, a fairly close connection between government and business. And the 70s, I, I, I graduated from high school in 1978. It was a terrible time in our country, culturally as well as economically. A lot of, you know, just sort of post-Vietnam malaise um, and real economic, the stagflation years. And, and I was very enthusiastic about the Reagan revolution. It made, and in retrospect, it made a lot of sense. We had a stagnant, over-consolidated, overly controlled tax rates that were stultifying. We needed to loosen it up, let the creative potential, the baby boomer generation, this was just coming of age really into the most productive years, release these creative energies and we would, we would benefit as a country and we did. And that was, I think, a great policy success. But I would say that now 40 years on, we are in a different historical moment. Uh, you know, we, we are, there isn't a baby boomer generation with all the social capital behind them of that time period. Um, we've been through a 30 year phase of globalization that's transformed the American economy. Um, our country is deconsolidated, fragmented, um, our economy is hyper productive at certain levels, but, um, um, uh, really, really stagnant at other levels. So we look at the last generation productivity growth has been quite mediocre. Um, and, uh, you know, the wage arbitrage of moving a lot of uh, manufacturing to East Asia has probably run its course. Well, we know that as a matter of political reality, um, that's probably, that was probably peak, um, you know, in the middle, you know, in, in the second Obama term. And so I just feel like, okay, well, we need to think, like, what do we need? What actions, just as the Reagan generation recognizes that it needed to use the power of government in order to create conditions for us to have a prosperous, productive economy, we need to be doing the same thing today. What do we need to do in the, with the power of government in order to um, preserve the conditions for our children and grandchildren to have a, a productive, free economy? So that's that's kind of what I where I see. So so um, so what does that mean? Uh, so what does that mean? You know, I'm not a you, you're much more involved in markets. You, you this is your job. Uh, so you're you know you're probably much more knowledgeable about these things than I am. I'm a kind of uh, a brainstormer that come up comes up with crazy ideas. But like here, David, here's one. You know, uh, Main Street, um, we have a problem with uh, uh, Main Street economy in America, the small to middle size companies in our country. They have not seen um, a good two or three decades. Uh, why is that? It's hard to know. Um, but if you look at the retail sector, obviously Walmart in the 90s and aughts, and now Amazon are present put tremendous competitive pressures onto um, onto small and mid-sized retailers that uh, you know, I would call the main street retailers. And I mean, maybe this is not a problem. Maybe cheap goods at Walmart are are, are really what we should prefer. Uh, but. I mean, reasonable people can disagree. And I happen to think that for a healthy society and also a political culture where we, where we don't have an over-consolidation of power among an oligarchy, that is very help, helpful to have $10 million, $100 million companies, uh, a lot of them and not just three or four $100 billion companies in the retail sector. When, so, given the fact that there are tremendous competitive advantages for Amazon and Walmart because they can negotiate with uh, wholesalers, with producers, to get a lower price, lower wholesale price than I could if I was running a three-store chain in Wichita. So, and that's the market working. That's and okay, fair enough. That's the market working. We as policymakers have to say, well, we don't want to 
we don't want to undermine the market. We don't want to be commanding. We don't want to dictate prices or anything like that. We want to use what mechanisms we can. So what if we have a, um, uh, a tax on internet commerce just to start? Mm. So you pay 2% tax on everything over $1 billion in internet sales per year. So it puts a thumb on the scale down on Amazon a little bit. And it helps the, it helps the, the guy in Wichita with the three-store retail chain. I think that there is, in this whole discussion... Sorry to be so long-winded. I apologize. Oh, no, no. It was perfect. It was perfect. Because I think that there is two layers to the conversation. There is a theoretical, like, is there um, an ideological divide or not? I did a debate on this podcast with Oren Cass about globalization and labor and our respective views about trade. And all of a sudden, there's a moment of clarity for both of us. And I think Oren and I are very friendly and cordial. There's a lot of mutual respect, even though there are some substantive disagreements, because I think Oren was really surprised to hear me say, we're in agreement about the aim. And, and so it's very helpful for me, and I think a lot of listeners, that you're, you're talking about within the um, boundaries of respecting freedom, the, the benefits of a market economy, the historical lessons of what the alternatives can do. You're, you're not looking to get outside of those boundaries, but then it leads to discussion about whether or not we want an e-commerce tax or, or what some of the various in, industrial policy solutions could be or what have you. And I would rather be able to have all of us that have some varying degree of commitment to the synthesis of liberty and virtue debate particular policy applications from shared first things. Um, and, and I say that because I adore the name of your journal. I, I've read it almost my entire life. Um, my, my father corresponded a great deal with, with Father Newhouse and, and it, it, some of the, that correspondence I have is among my, my favorite things that I've read. And, and so the, just the very concept of first principles is the way I teach economics to high school kids I teach. And it's the way I talk about it as a, a, a high-level investment manager, that I invest client capital out of a set of principles, right? I don't know that the principles the way you just laid them out, are that far apart. I do think there's a couple of slights of hand I want to clarify, though, because I think your language is very accurate that um, government helped create conditions for prosperity in the Reagan 80s revolution, and all you're wanting now, let's call it 40 years later, is to evaluate ways to do the same. Well, no, let's, let me interrupt. I think that in the Reagan era... Just to use a crude language, let's call let's distinguish solidarity from prosperity. Prosperity is increased material well-being for folks. Solidarity is social cohesion. Um, I think the Reagan era we took for granted social cohesion, and we could. Uh, I think we live in a different era. Uh, we have a great deal of material prosperity in our country and much less social cohesion. So we need to think about how do we use policy measures to encourage greater cohesion. Uh, and, and sometimes and material means, prosperity, and, and sometimes that will come at the cost, modest cost of material prosperity. Of course, I mean the point being, like it may lead to higher consumer prices for people in Wichita. This 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 yeah. internet tax I, I described, moderately higher cost. Well, that's a material cost, and so as a policymaker, as leaders of our country, we need to ask, you know, is the social cohesion be benefit? enough to justify that extra cost? Maybe not. Okay. Maybe it's bad policy or, you know, or, you know, or is it, is that an inefficient way to do it? What's the most, what's the most efficient way for us to encourage, if you will, I would call local and regional economic relations because a free economy where, where we have entire counties in the United States that are populated with nothing but consumers and workers and no owners is really probably not a healthy environment for the future of democracy. 
And so, so I would add a, a second kind of category of distinction. You're, you're referring to it, when we evaluate the Reagan era and where we are now, that there's an impact to material prosperity and then set against that the you know, potential trade-off and, and, and category evaluation and social cohesion. And I think that's a helpful distinction. And in a way, it's interesting. I think I'm going to end up being less complimentary of the Reagan market era than you are, because I'm not sure I agree that, like, in other words, a, a, a kind of pedestrian summary of your construction is that we had a high social cohesion we could take for granted then. And so then, therefore, the um, policy decisions that helped build prosperity were a, were a little easier to come by, where now a lot of the social cohesion is much worse. And therefore, the way in which we're evaluating market policy need, needs to be different. And I, I'm not sure I agree with the first premise. I, I, um, I certainly agree that it, it would seem on the surface when you look at Twitter wars today that <laughs> we have less social cohesion than we might have in, in the Reagan 80s. But I still would doubt that the fundamental religious fervor and, and by religious, I don't mean superficial, right? I mean real theological and moral and philosophical cohesion of the society. I think it was quite secularized in the 80s as well. Um, but you're, it certainly manifested itself differently. I, I, I would suspect that most of the differences that we feel are on octane right now are technological more than cultural. But, but even if there is just been that rapid of a descent, be, that the, the degradation the sexual revolution did from the 60s to 80s was not as severe as from the 60s to the 2020s. That, fair yeah. enough. But are you willing to make a distinction between the, um, and I want to use your language so I'm totally fair, government creating conditions that the Reagan era involvement of government creating conditions were by negation, not affirmation that they were removing impediments to economic growth via burdensome tax rates and regulation, and that there's a distinction between the government removing impediments such as deregulatory efforts and the reduction of marginal tax burdens versus the suggestion that now in the 2020s, government should do the same thing, helping to create conditions for prosperity and, and cohesion, but doing it more affirmatively. Is there a fair distinction there in your mind? Uh, yes and no. Um, you know, lowering the top marginal rate, um, uh, you know, the money's, you know, the, the funding has to come from somewhere um, for the government. And so you're, you're going to increase impediments in one area and decrease impediments in, in another area. Now, deficit spending can kick the can down the road, obviously. And, and, forestall that that kind of choice but i think you know in the reagan era people made the if you, you simple idea you want people to work more increase the benefit they get from work government cannot set wages should not set wages uh you know minimum wage i have no objection to but certainly the notion that the government's going to set the wages for high performing members of the economy is absurd uh you'll get inefficiencies that, that will boggle your mind so the only tool we have is to lower the tax rate on the most high, most high performing people in society, which is what we did, um, and we got what we wanted. Um, I remember being at this uh, traveling, watching you know book TV because there was nothing else to watch in this hotel room, and at John Updike, it was the end of his life, was being interviewed, and, and the, he said that you know he was at Bard College, and the students found his early novels so like unrealistic because they all turn on cocktail parties in Westchester County, suburbia, where upper middle class parents get drunk and, you know, wind up having adulterous affairs. And the kid said, parents are never home in the afternoon. They don't come home until nine o'clock at night. Mm. And Updike laughed and said, I had to tell them that it was really hard to make a lot of money in the 1950s. Yeah. You want high performing people to work less? Tax them at 90% top marginal yeah. rate. Yeah. Yeah. They'll be home for cocktails at five. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and incentives, so, incentives work both ways. Incentives work both ways. And yeah. so, uh, you know, um, uh, we have sin taxes. 
You know, we don't want people to smoke cigarettes here in New York. So we have outrageously high taxes. It's more than $10 for a pack of cigarettes. Um, you know, so if I propose a divorce tax, so as I see that as a kind of sin, mm-hmm. you know, harmful to society, uh, undermines the um, institution of marriage. So I've proposed that couples with a net worth of more than a half a million dollars a year, a half a million dollars should pay a 10% uh, divorce tax when they get divorced. And, you know, I mean, that's definitely the government using, you know, creating an impediment. Uh, I think it would not be a bad impediment to create, to be frank. Do you, um, do you believe that um, in this? Also, in terms of, it, I mean, again, if we have to, um, tariffs are another form of mm-hmm. tax, effectively. You're taxing commerce when you impose a tariff. It's, it's a selective tax. You're taxing uh, commerce coming from a particular, you know, imports from, coming from a, of a particular type going to a particular destination. Um, uh, I have no objection to tariffs. Uh, again, if, if there's a compelling national requirement that we achieve a certain goal, Again, maybe there's a more efficient way to do it, market efficient way to do it. Uh, but that's way better than a government bureaucrat develop, devising a kind of import plan and stipulating who can and cannot import and how much they can. It lets individual market actors decide, is this product worth the 10% import duty? You know, And if it's that much better, they'll import it. But why why does one not lead to the other? I I think this is one of the the great concerns that people like myself who are a bit more skeptical of the ability for the government to do a lot of what you're talking about them doing in this era, in the 2020s, is that um, there's no precedent of us having tariffs that do not lead to carve-outs and exceptions and, and various cronyist De- desires. I-, I think that the um, there's the a famous is interesting because I've I've always said um, <laughs> why I, I, pe- I, people will point out to me that some of the founding fathers were f- fond of tariffs, and I've read Hamilton's work on the subject, and and of course you know we're we're talking about being sans an income tax at the time, but my my um my whole issue is are we willing to start these different conversations a divorce tax. Um, a, a, a various tariffs, um, the Walmart, um, how do we down, get Walmart to be a little less powerful in local communities? And, and whatever the policy idea is, we could all kind of mix into the sink here and start to, to fledge out. Are we willing to do that with a really intellectually honest acknowledgement of trade-offs? And, and I think a lot of the policy ideas that some right now, and for just generalization purposes, not to be fallacious, but to be convenient, folks in your camp around a lot of this stuff right now, right? That um, a lot of the ideas have a prima facie acceptability, but when we consider trade-offs, I think it changes things real quickly. And I think about that issue. I'm a big subsidiarity guy. I'm a big localist. I think your your point about Walmart is fascinating. I don't agree, Rusty, that the data shows that small and mid-sized businesses outside of retail have systemically suffered over the last 35 years. That's just the easiest category to go to. And I think about the kind of nostalgic argument for the local hardware store and the impact of a Walmart coming in. And I think about the first principle that I don't believe in price fixing or various forms of really excessive statism to put an end to it. And so your, your idea is basically kind of nibbling around the edges that over a certain dollar amount, a, a sales tax of sorts, a surtax could help perhaps remedy it to some degree. And, and I think I'm, I'm fine with that so far, having the discussion. But I just think your side would have to acknowledge that tax. And it sounded like you did. Before I brought it up, you were very self-aware the small, the the lower income person in Wichita will be paying it, right? Everybody will pay it, but the lower income person will feel it the most. But if I paid it, I wouldn't even know I paid it. I know, agreed. I mean, yeah. everybody's paying, and your point is correct. That and so the, the question people is, who are living paycheck to paycheck will feel it the most, and so you have to. We have to actually 
think about it, you know, like what, what is, what, you know, again, if I'm, I just need to project myself into the position of the $35,000 a year wage earner living in Wichita with trying to, you know, support my family. Pretty hard to do. Yeah. And, um, uh, and the effect of, you know, higher food prices, et cetera, et cetera. Um, on the one hand, on the other hand, I have to sort of say, you know, what kind of society does he want to live in? Um, and, you know, like I can say, I'm not going to go to the wall for that idea. No, I mean, it's I just, you easily persuaded that that it's a mistake. But, you know, at the Wall Street, you know, uh, Wall Street Journal editorial page gets all up in arms that this is conservative social engineering. And I just think, look, you're always setting the guardrails through tax policy for a society. You're always, um, and, the, and I think, I think a is it fair though for is it fair for us to say we want to set the guardrails with the least amount of distortion and inter- and intervention absolutely. and contra motivation to productivity as possible? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I think that's that's what that goes without question. And to your point about abuse, I mean, abuse does not invalidate use, but it's only a fool who doesn't consider the potential for abuse and set aside certain options because they're far, far too susceptible to political manipulation. And also and, pragmatically, I think it would be fair to say, let's say we we went through the discussion, we adjudicated, everybody's intellectuals wrote white papers, and when all was said and done, we decided this could be an effective thing, uh, um, the, the quote-unquote internet tax, for example. Um, I still think it would be pragmatically worthwhile to run uh, in, the, in terms of calculation of trade-offs would it really hurt Amazon? Would it really hurt Walmart? What would the level have to be to, to hurt them? Yes. I, I think those are difficult questions to answer. And, and yet the very premise, does, it, there's a, a sort of a version from my first principles because I believe the slippery slope is real. And, and I don't think it's about social, I don't think it's a, a, a nefarious social engineering, but when we talk about some of the nostalgic arguments, which I think yours is a better argument than merely nostalgic, like we miss the cute mom and pop hardware store and we just want this sort of um, uh, sensibility back. I think you're talking about something more culturally significant and, and cohesive in the society. And yet, um, I don't know that we have a solution that is not worse than the problem itself. Um, yeah, David, I think in my, in my debates over, because I really, I actually said these things in 2012 and 2013, but nobody paid attention. But of course, election of Trump in 2016 disrupted the Republican consensus. And so suddenly people became very concerned that that consensus would, would, um, but, um, was being undermined. So my my gentle doubts became a source of great anxiety in, in many circles. But I guess in my debates, I found that a great deal turns on whether or not the person I'm talking with thinks that our country is facing a serious crisis. And if you do, then you're willing to take risks in your policymaking. You're willing to risk uh, abuse and political capture. You're willing to risk having it do more harm than good. Um, what What if you believe we are facing serious risks, but in this sort of um, crux that you're describing, you're worried about the risks the other way? It, I was thinking about sin tax, divorce tax. You know, I have the exact same theological opinion about divorce that you do. <laughs> but um, I I worry a little bit about the argument for a, a punitive situation on, on divorce and then that in the reality of the moment, that's what the ESG guys want to do, right? Uh, 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 can their argument be used, your argument be used by them to morally tax uh, fossil, uh, morally tax uh, comedians that say the wrong things on Netflix? You know, that there, that there is... 
a slippery slope there that I consider not fictitious, that it's real life of what we're seeing. The things that I used to, I remember when they uh, banned smoking in California in the 90s, indoors, like even at bars. And I remember saying, oh, it's only a matter of time till they're going to tell us we can't drink soda pop or have to have our hamburgers prepared a certain way. And I was joking. I thought it was a really clever, uh, you know, mid-20s guy coming up with a reductio ad absurdum. And yet I was wrong. It really did happen. Now, maybe people think those are good things that we want more soda pop size regulation and we want the uh, state to tell the restaurant and the customer what the temperature of the burger should be prepared at. But my point is that the the divorce tax idea, I, I, I would like to discuss it. But well, I would like, you, I would like to know what the guardrail is against the re- inverse. How does it not get used against us by those who don't share our value system in this pluralistic society? Yeah, I, I mean, it seems to me ESG is... Uh, doesn't violate any market principles. It's not like ESG people are creating monopolies. They're not, you know, they're 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 using the existing legal market mechanisms uh, yes. to try to promote their view of the future of our society. But, yeah, but you're begging the question. Think, you're begging the question because they're, in fairness, they're limited by legal market principles. And legal market principles have been incredibly successful in the last year and a half at fighting back. But that's, sure. only, that's only because they're not getting what they want. The most um, uh, extreme of the ESG fanatics would be very happy to go outside market principles to, to uh, achieve these ends. Well, sure. I mean, and they, they can. I mean, they have in the Biden administration. I mean, the, the um, Inflation Reduction Act has got hundreds of billions of dollars of, of, of subsidy for yeah. what they think is the necessary future for our country. Again, I think they are over-investing in green at the cost of energy security for our country. I think it's going gonna, it's gonna to be, uh, if they have their way over the next decade, um, we, will be very, we will be much more vulnerable uh, um, as a country, and our and our and our energy system will be much more fragile, and, and so on. I think you and I agree with that. Yeah. Um, uh, so, but that's just the world we live in. You can't prevent people from using the tools at their disposal to try to to try to build the world they think to make the world better, to make our country better. Um, and I think we need to we need to um, we obviously have to have a rule of law. We have to have constitutional limits um, and uh, and and give ample scope for market principles to discipline, um, uh, you know, behavior in the economic sphere that gets over its skis. I mean, I think that you and I agree on that. Yeah, we do. But I just think we cannot indemnify ourselves against this possibility without paralyzing our ability to do anything. Um, and again, we'll go back to the question of whether we think we're in a crisis. I mean, we've got 40%. Children in the United States are born out of wedlock. Uh, marriage is collapsing for people with the high school education. 100,000 people a year die of drug overdose death. Um, you know, we're not meeting our military um, uh, recruitment goals, and we're not meeting them by quite a large margin. There are a lot of, if you went to, if a doctor, if a patient went to a doctor with these kinds of vital signs, the doctor would say, whoa, you need to check into the hospital so we can do a throw." For a workup of you, um, and again, in those situations, if we want to, if we want to be responsible citizens, we have to think big about addressing those problems. That doesn't mean we stop thinking about, um, you know, unforeseen consequences and slippery slopes and all that kind of stuff. But it means we have to be a lot bolder and willing to take all kinds of risks. Otherwise, it'll go to the other side. I mean, I, I hate to ramble on about this, but again. The Biden administration, you know, since 1945, with the exception of the Reagan years, the liberal establishment, the center left, has set the governing agenda for our country. And we on the right have functioned as a break um, on their excesses, to check their excesses. Uh, um, 2016, Trump gets elected. He gets a Republican nomination, actually much more significant than his actual election, probably in some respect. And he doesn't, and he gets it against the desires of every single mainstream uh, Republican grandee. 
So the Republican Party lost control of its own voters. Um, why? You know, I think the most reasonable explanation is because something is very wrong for high school educated Americans. And they, Trump said things, wall, tariffs, tariff trade deals. They, all, they could all be like stupid ideas, but they were all resonating with people who said, I have been stripped bare, exposed in a hostile environment, and no one is protecting me. Okay, so now we get the Inflation Reduction Act. Blinken becomes Secretary, or Secretary of State. Seven principles for American foreign policy, one of which is middle-class flourishing, by which he does not mean Chinese middle-class flourishing. Wall Street Journal, oh, this is so ridiculous. What does this have to do with American foreign policy? But what it really says is that the Democratic Party got the message. We need to move hard, spend big, in order to restore middle-class prosperity in our country. Otherwise, we too, we liberal, liberal establishment people who, who run the country, you and I don't run the country, they run the country, they're going to lose control. And they're going all in. We're spending hundreds of billions of dollars to repatriate manufacturing in the United States. And so, there's going to be all kinds of market distortions. There's going to be endless log rolling, uh, all of these things. But they will succeed, roughly. All you need to do is succeed on the margins. You don't need to succeed 100%. They'll succeed, and they will continue to run the country because they will actually have addressed the actual problem we have. In what, in what sense, though, um, I think you have a little more optimism than I do about how they're <laughs> addressing the middle class angst. My general feel, I'm going to pretend I'm not the political junkie I am because I really do hate being a political junkie. I wish that I um, always stayed purely in my lane of economics and finance and uh, theology, things that I deeply love, and stayed away uh, from the political um, sort of uh, drama of it all. But, but that's sense, the age we live in. But it's my the age we live in. Yeah, that's yeah. true. But in, in fairness, I, I was a, a National Review subscriber in kindergarten and, and, <laughs> and was very involved in helping Reagan to beat Carter in, in, in 79 and 80 and all that stuff. And so I think even before the age of sort of um, sport, uh, uh, that we're in now with it. it, it, it I kind of had the bug uh, much younger in life. But um, it seems to me that the the Democratic Party you refer to um, has really tripled down on the opposite, that rather than address some of the lunch pail issues and middle-class economic angst, that um, their uh, public profile of priority has been seriously coastal, seriously elite, seriously extreme culturally on the LGBTQ front, the transgender front, the, um, the, the, uh, v these issues. And I, I don't want to use all the, the generic terms, but the woke cancel culture kind of era, they seem to have tripled down there. And I can't think of something that I believe middle-class flyover country cares about less. No, more, I mean, it's hostile to because they recognize that it... And they're hostile to it. It, that's it right. shreds what little is left of that's right. stable, traditional moral culture in their own, in their own communities. I agree so with the, you. The Biden administration getting a footnote in about middle class, I, I see that really tangential, but that their top priority seems to me to be the opposite. Yeah, I, I, I mean, the the Biden administration, it's continued the uh, the Trump trade policy with respect to China. Um, you know, um, we are we're like I say, we're spending a lot of money um, on chip production now. Chips don't employ a huge number of people, but building those plants is going to employ a lot, a lot of people. That's right. Um, so yeah, I, I and again, I. I, I you know, I'm I'm with you. It's, and it's also we're back to it's coastal. It's the big tech companies that are going to benefit the most from this. Uh, you know, um, although although the electronic vehicle subsidies, which are huge in this Inflation Reduction Act, um, you know, there's going to be a big upsurge in plant construction and employment in Tennessee, Kentucky and Michigan. Uh, 
So is that your view? Again, you use Chips Act as an example. Is Chips Act something you would view as market distortive, but net-net is the type of thing we need to be fond of? No, and no. Given- it's market distortive. And so it's really incumbent upon us to say, whoa, 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 stop you know, using a machete when we should be using a scalpel. And how can we have a more of a full spectrum uh, uh, um, a, a renewal of manufacturing? And not just a couple of high tech industries, um, like you know, factories that make toothbrushes. Now, here's where cheap natural gas can be a huge advantage for us yep. in the in the Ohio River Valley. And you know, uh, um, the Europeans are ruining the fact that uh, of this Ukraine war. In fact, you know, the more conspiratorially minded think we orchestrated it all in order to secure the deindustrialization. If you've heard those sorts of arguments. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, that's an absurd conspiracy theory, but it does speak to a real opportunity for us to leverage uh, the, our, our energy advantages, which this administration is absolutely refuses to do because yeah. of its green ideology. Yeah. Um, so I think, but, you know, uh, Orrin Cass is criticized because he, he promotes industrial policy. You know, industrial policy. Let the market decide. My view is, Yes, let the market decide. But again, his uh, Oren's approach to industrial policy is to 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 uh, modify parameters so that market actors can function efficiently within those parameters. You know, it'll you know, where you put the guardrails affects where the, where the race cars drive. And and uh, so when when I can tell that I have a reasonably like-minded ally in the cause of a free and virtuous society with someone like Oren or someone like you, The I where I'm pushing back is on the side of, let's please remember trade-offs. Let's please remember trade-offs. Yeah, but we and where you're pushing have... back is on the side of, let's please remember how bad the crisis is. And also, the political reality. Okay. It takes a plan to beat a plan. It takes a platform to beat a platform. Does and the political reality also require us to evaluate where a policy done today can go into the future? I've always said our grandchildren, if we're successful, as Reagan, Reagan generation was successful, that our children and grandchildren will rue our policy decisions because it is we are doomed always without ever intending it. Every policy success, success lays the foundations for the next generation's problems and crises. I mean, globalization, the pro- promise was it would lead to tremendous prosperity globally. It did. It, it sure has. Uh, you know, I don't look back on the Clinton administration and say that um, NAFTA was, a, was like wrong or the WTO was wrong or the repeal of Glass-Steagall was wrong. Uh, those were actually all like quite smart ideas at the time, given what we knew. Maybe we should have done them differently to avoid, but you can't, you can't know the future. Yeah. And so then next thing you know, we get the 08 financial crisis, which is, you know, in some ways a consequence of the repeal of Glass-Steagall. But our, we couldn't dominate the global financial system unless we repealed Glass-Steagall. We had to give Wall Street full access to depositor capital in order to stand on top of the global system, which, which today we could not impose punitive financial costs on Russia had we not retained our dominance of the global financial system. I've gotten so yeah. much better since I started this podcast at not um, t- uh, going to the tangents from a kind of side point and staying on the main point you're making. Yet when it comes to the financial crisis, it's my baby. And, and tangentially, I can't resist. The, the thing, you're right in your main point, which is that Glass-Steagall was sensible in the 90s. And if someone believed later it had a different problem, that's the nature of history, right? Some things can make sense at one time and become it, But if it was deeply consequential. But I just want to point out that the, the whole Glass-Steagall the thing, the Liz Warren talking point about Glass-Steagall <laughs> and the Michael Lewis talking point is factually inaccurate. Lehman Brothers did not have a commercial bank. Bear Stearns did not have a commercial bank. The commercial banks that had, because of Glass-Steagall, got to mix investment operations with commercial banks, they were the ones that the Fed went to to save the world. 
The B of A's had to buy Merrill Lynch. The Wells Fargo's had to buy Wachovia. The JP Morgan's had to buy Bear Stearns. So the ability to mix commercial and investment banking that was necessary in the 90s for competitiveness with Barclays and Deutsche Bank and Credit Suisse and all the rest, that wasn't what caused the financial crisis. And, didn't and cause so, it. No, but I, no, I would never say it caused it. You're, what caused it is uh, um, a, whole not, a whole different matter. Yeah. Uh, but it, what it meant is that crisis had a, a far deeper systemic consequences for every American. And it, it didn't only affect... Um, it didn't only, only, but let's not, as I said, it, I admitted it was tangential, but you're, well, I would say you're this, yeah. David, I would say this, anything that we do now that's really consequential for shaping the future of our country will be implicated in the future problems of our country. And so, and so because of that risk and I being a very covenantally minded person who cares about how this will impact our kids and grandkids. And I know you certainly do too. I want to proceed with caution on areas that would be somewhat, um, shall we say, previously controversial to invite state intervention into a market activity, which is not the same as disagreeing that there ought to be guardrails and having thoughtful conversations about those guardrails. But the, the point I was trying to make before is that I don't think I'm insufficiently outraged at the state of the culture. That's one thing that I love reading with your stuff. I love reading in first things. And, and it isn't really Oren's theme. I think Oren is more focused that the worker has been slighted and, and his is a more economic argument about standard of living for a, a, a kind of rust belt middle class where you're inviting marriage, drug overdose, uh, out of childbirth, um, you're inviting a family dynamic and social cohesion in the conversation. And I do believe that it's possible that somebody can agree with you on the, on the premise and the cultural problems and yet not be convinced that the market activities were the primary cause and therefore will be primary solution. And no, I, well, like, no I, I agree. Look, I think it's clear that a consumer culture has uh, can have deleterious moral consequences. But you know, I just I hate these you know I hate these you know um, monolithic uh, explanations. I mean, why we are where we are as a country morally deeply complicated question to to try to answer. It's more important for us to think not why did it happen, but what you do about it. And uh, and. And I do think part of what the piece that you responded to was my attempt to say that we need a, if we don't, one way to avoid, um, you know, left wing market intervention is to have a, have cultural institutions in our society strong enough to provide people a basis on which to, you know, to sustain our free economy. And I think family is really hugely important in this regard. And I think, you know, why this seems a legitimate area of government concern is to restore and renew the institution of marriage. And what could be more fundamental to any kind of social health? And why do we even have governments if not to protect our core institutions and promote our core institutions? And, and so, that, yeah. you know, maybe it's, here's again, a tax policy. And it could, you know, uh, I mean, you know, maybe we just think big or even, you know, subsidy. I mean, the Democratic Party's idea is to what's the pressure on the family, Ch children, it's the two worker household, mom works, the father works. What's their solution? Institutionalize children at a very young age, yep. free pre-K, right? So we have deinstitutionalized the people who are mentally ill and we'll institutionalize small children. It's insane to my mind. Yes, it our, is. As, as conservatives, our policy ought to be, well, not, it'll fix itself. Because that's, I mean, how do you know that's going to happen? So let's take action. We should be, you know, we should be giving money to married couples with children. Do you think at the federal level? As much as we possibly can, which is and basically what the, what the Arizona school choice bill does.
it gives parents with children who are who are school yeah. aged seven thousand dollars a year per child. But 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 Rusty, in fairness, it 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 gives them money that they were already paying towards the state school system, and it provides an additional option. No, no, no. There are a lot of people in Arizona going to get that money. Don't pay any taxes at all. And and so they were not paying taxes already as public school parents as well. That's my no, point. No, they're poor. I mean, you know, everybody gets that. Right. So they're it's not, not paying taxes. My point is apples to apples. They're not paying taxes now, and all they have is a state school system. In the new bill, they're not paying taxes now, and they have better school options. Right. But it is, so, it is different than a new money's taken from, let's say, a guy like mine's pocket to be put into someone else's. The, that redistribution mechanism for some form of schooling is already in place. And what, they've, and what they've done is add parental choice. But David, I mean, that, that's nice. But to me, that's, that doesn't, that doesn't, that's not a big factor in my thinking. If somebody said to me, you're going you're gonna to have to pay a 5% in, uh, increase in your, in your, in your you know, top rate, and, you know, every, and if we say every married couple, not just every woman who has a child, but every married couple with a child is going to get $10,000 per child per year, I'm happy to sign on to that. And you and you believe that should be compulsory via the state, and not you have, you are feeling a moment of frustration about the ability of the private sector, or the ability of charitably minded people of faith, or or whatnot. You don't think that the nonprofit sector can pick up that burden on its own. We need some form of of state compulsion to do it. You can't get action at scale in the nonprofit sector on these kinds of issues. I mean, if we did $10,000 per child per year, I mean, this is hundreds of billions of dollars per year. Um, so, I mean, Romney's, oh, but, but I, I think econo economically, though, that money, there is a, um, a cost and a savings. Um, if we were, if we, uh, again, we, I started a private high school here in Newport Beach. This is one of the wealthiest cities in America. And it's a reasonably high-priced school, but we refuse to turn someone away because they can't afford it. If they're qualified to come to school, we're, we want to have a robust form of, of scholarship available. And, you're, and the key words in what you said are at scale. So I recognize that you know, I'm, I'm using a, a single example, but the point I wanted to make was that we can charge higher tuition to the rich kids to subsidize the less rich kids or we can raise the money from the donor class. But either way, we want everyone, we believe in a school for every city, we believe that there is a real benefit socially um, to having um, diversity of socioeconomic backgrounds within the school. Well, the thing is that I've realized is the cost of education is what it is. And when we talk about the cost of these school choice bills, that the only people who fight them are not people like me and not market orthodox, you know, camps. I mean, this was a big Milton Friedman point, right, about vouchers and tax credits and all that. It's the teachers unions. And the reason is that that cost you're referring to, it is not a new cost. It's a replacement that we now are educating a kid for 20 grand a year that they used to be educating for 20 grand a year. So within our kind of science of economics here, we haven't needed to create new wealth. We have just reallocated resources. And that's why I think school choice is a great example. It does scratch an itch of a social problem you and I care about, and it doesn't require a lot of state intervention or new funding mechanisms. It requires the removal of an impediment, which is the teacher. Well, no, but it, no, it's a new funding mechanism. The Arizona bill is a new funding mechanism. Plus, it'll take a generation for the reallocation of resources. I mean, the public system will remain bloated. It'll take an entire generation for it to downscale as, as kids leave it, um, just because of the nature of, of these things. So it will be actually at a cost to society. Yeah. And it's worth it to get from where we are now to where we need to be. But I would say this too, you know, you, it, is, it is an expenditure. That school in Newport Beach would, if, if every if every parent at that school had, you know, ten thousand dollars 
to bring to the tuition payment. You could open a whole new campus. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so I think the Arizona bill, this is a game changer. It, I mean, as a conservative, and I'm with you on subsidiarity, we need to think about how to, um, how to, how to do uh, redistribution in ways that puts money into the pockets of families, because then that creates the conditions resource that could creates the, if you will, the consumer side for organizations, new schools, new foundations, new activities at the local level. And the Democratic Party wants exactly the opposite strategy. They want a government run, government administered, and government financed. Uh, you know, this monolith, you know, pre-K through whatever, uh, the Julia story from the Obama campaign. And and I think as conservatives, we, we should not be anti-redistribution. Uh, redistribution can lead to dependency and, and things that we need to guard against. But uh, redistribution, I think, is a inevitable element of a society like ours that believes in equal citizenship. Not equal income, not equal... Uh, wealth, but equal citizenship. At some point, um, we as a society become uncomfortable with the idea that um, uh, they're winners and losers at, at, a, at, at a in a kind of fundamental way. I, I so really do think it's a way of trying to give everybody a everybody an equal opportunity. And I think that um, as conservatives, we just need to think about how can we design redistribution, not to polemicize against it, but to frame it and design it in a way that restores, provides resources for the restoration of all these mediating institutions, uh, which we already have in our society. I'm like, when you go to Europe and you talk to Europeans, they're so jealous of us, uh, European conservatives, because we really do actually start all these cool, fantastic things at the local level. Uh, so let's take them and, and not have the government give a grant to your school, but to get the government to give money to parents so that your parents can decide which school to actually enroll their kids in. Which I, school I, to, to I give think money that when, to. when you talk about the reality of redistribution, um, the, what my side of this debate is over here screaming is, first of all, theologically, I you're right, there's going to be redistribution. And even if in Dave land, redistribution was only happening because I am a very charitable person and I write checks and then some of my money gets reallocated into other people's needs. I've still sort of voluntarily redistributed money. There, There is still redistribution, right? Because of the nature of, of a market and of society and needs and, and a lot of realities, both of a fallen world and, and whatnot. But I don't think that talking cavalier about redistribution without rooting it to a Genesis 1 principle that this is where it's fully gone from the redistributionist argument. We have accepted um, an inhumane premise from the left that half of us are capable of producing and half of us are not. Yes. And it is dehumanizing it is um, contrary to what I believe about Imago Dei. And so when we talk about redistributionism, I do feel that it's helpful to really continue to reassert the theological case for the dignity of all humankind and the economic reality that there is redistribution that impedes the cause of wealth creation. And wealth creation solves more problems than wealth redistribution. And so we can be arguing against ourselves sometimes. And well, but, yeah, David, I would say uh, wealth creation. I, I, I mean, I, I accept, uh, you know, the you know, creative destruction argument uh, that it's, 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 it's a crucial element of wealth creation. And the, those who are leading that charge are a relatively small portion of the working. These are entrepreneurs. These are people in the so-called creative class. Uh, so wealth creation is a function of, of, the, of a, the minority of the top producers, in my view. And most people, most ordinary people play a productive role in enterprises led by these kinds of people. Yep. That's hugely important. And a source of great satisfaction 
uh, to any human being to be engaged in work that's actually wealth creating. Um, difference between government workers and workers in the private sector, you often feel that. People in the private sector feel like, well, I'm, I'm, I'm working for an enterprise where what I do matters. People who work for the government office often feel like what they do doesn't really matter. It doesn't matter whether they show up to work or not. So our challenge is not wealth creation. I would submit actually our economy is pretty good at that uh, and has been. And I think I'm confident will remain so. But you alluded, you alluded earlier, to, though, that you were concerned we about the productive. We need to give a productive role to, you know, the vast middle of our society. And the crisis is that they increasingly have no productive role. Uh, some of it is the seduction of welfare benefits that keep them out of the productive economy. In other cases, it's the function of creative destruction itself, yeah. which is, you know, I mean, people are not machines. They don't get up and move to where the opportunity is. Yeah. Uh, and, I, and I don't, and, and, and I'm not a fan of those. I, I think Kevin Williamson's views on this are, are mistaken. You know, I think it, people ought to want to live where they grew up. It's a good thing. Hmm. Uh, so anyway, so how do we think economically about giving these people productive roles in our society, uh, in, our, in our economy? To me, that's the big mother of all challenges for conservatives right now. Because the left is willing to sub, their end game is universal basic uh, income, which is that they say to the voter, I will guarantee you a first world role as a consumer. But yeah, we don't really need you for anything else. Yeah. I think we need to be able to say, no, we're going to work, work on the guardrails, try to guide our economy in what way we can, respecting free market principles, but try to encourage an economy that provides a productive role. So we can turn around and say, we're going to give you a productive place in our economy and not just the role as a first world consumer. Yeah. If we can do that, I guarantee you, we, we will run the country and not the center left, which has been running the country for my, throughout my lifetime. Well, Rusty, thank you for being willing to come on and, and speak about these things with me. I, I, do, I, I do think there are substantive areas of disagreement, but there are there is a lot of common ground about identification of problems and, and an aspiration for things to not go that direction, to not go to universal basic income, to not allow the left to have a carte blanche in the way um, many of these solutions are constructed. And even though we may disagree on, on some of the, the details as to how we go about approaching it and some of the diagnoses around it, I've benefited from the conversation and, and I appreciate you coming on and I would love to have you back on again if you're so inclined. No, it'd be a delight. It's been a pleasure to chat. Thanks so much. Well, thank you as always for listening to the Capitol Record. I hope that wherever side of those different issues you are on in the, in the various things that Rusty and I just discussed, I hope you found the conversation profitable and stimulating. Um, I do believe that uh, there is a lot more to unpack about causation um, and the invitation for a greater role in the state as solution where you believe you will need to accept a heavier role of market intervention and distortion and even things that your kids and grandkids will one day rue the day about. I think that we will benefit from better understanding some of the causation that much like my view on the, uh, the Fed's role with inflation right now, you have a much better chance of prescribing solutions if you do end up getting an understanding of the causation right. And I think that there is some disagreements Rusty and I have about that which plagues us culturally right now. I do believe the failure of the church and the cultural breakdown of family are, are larger issues than some of the commercial progressions of Walmart and, and the size and scale of things. And I do believe that a greater role of the state could very well exacerbate some of the very things that Rusty is right to be concerned about. But I don't want to relitigate the debate now with him off air. That's not, not fair to him, and, it's, and we're past our time for today's podcast anyways. But there's a lot more to unpack. There, there's um, a need for a real reiteration of first principles. 
And that's the thing I would plead with my friends on the quote unquote new right about those that are at a point of frustration uh, that do have the adequate amount of ire that Rusty referred to about the state of affairs that see it uh, appropriately as the crisis that it is. I want to plead with them to understand trade-offs, to understand the risks that are taken on and, and to not be cavalier about it. Um, and then from there to really engage in very thoughtful conversations about the good, bad, and ugly of potential uh, solutions. That in principle, there is a, a virtuous society we're after and that a virtuous society cannot exist if it's not a free society. Um, I don't think there's much I just said that Rusty would disagree with, but when we get into the weeds, there would be, and that's okay. That's what this podcast is for. That's what uh, true intellectual conversations about much like the conversations I had with Orrin Cass last year, and I hope to have Orrin back on again this year. Um, I hope that you found this conversation civil and cordial. Um, there are folks on the other side of this issue that, are, that don't uh, behave civilly and cordially and wouldn't extend that cordiality to me. But Rusty, Rusty was a very fair and hospitable partner today, and I hope I was with him. I hope I was with Orrin. I intend to be. I intend to keep that posture as long as I possibly can with everyone I possibly can, not only because I think it's who God asked me to be, but because I think it might actually move the needle better. Um, that's not to say we're going to find out we all already agree, and by being nice, we just get to a point of kumbaya. There's real disagreement, and there's real disagreement with me and Rusty. But let's work through these things together with reason and with first principles. And out of that, hopefully, um, avoid some mistakes and advance the cause of a free and virtuous society. Thank you for listening to Capital Record.